1: a short, sharp snapshot of the region's policy landscape. I'm Edwina Landale, and this week, we're turning our gaze to China, where reports claim that the Chinese government has detained close to a million Uyghur Muslims in secretive internment camps and re-education centers. The region of Xinjiang in northwest China shares borders with eight nations. It is a diverse region with a distinct cultural history, home to about 12 million Muslims. Its largest ethnic group is the Uyghur minority, and for decades now there has been tension between Uyghur people, who seek cultural autonomy in their homeland of Xinjiang, and the Communist Party of China, who seek to bring the region into the fold of Chinese nationalism. As part of its strike-hard campaign, the Chinese state claims to be fighting against the three evil forces—terrorism, separatism, and religious fundamentalism. Under this banner, the Chinese government has reportedly detained close to a million Uyghur and minority Muslims in internment camps and re-education centers. There have been claims that anything from reading foreign websites to speaking to relatives abroad can land residents of Xinjiang in detention. The Chinese government denies the claims, but reports tell of physical and psychological torture. Joining us today is Dr. Thomas Cliff, Tom is a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Culture, History and Language at the ANU and has conducted long-term fieldwork in Xinjiang, covering over two decades. He is one of the world's leading experts on Xinjiang and has personal experience of the people, culture and policy of the region. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. It's a pleasure. The Chinese government portrays its actions in Xinjiang as counter-terror operations, and critics describe it as a case of religious oppression at best and ethnic cleansing at worst. How would you describe what's actually currently happening in Xinjiang?
0: In terms of what uh, you just raised, these camps um, and and the related practices, um, I wouldn't describe it as a war on terror. I mean, it's it's not not, uh, moving towards eliminating anti-state feelings or those people, it's going towards eliminating the Uyghur's culture and their family structures and their structures of loyalty. Uh, And I think there's increasing evidence coming from the state that exactly that's what it's about. It's about destroying non-Han systems of cultural authority and replacing them with Han-type systems of cultural authority. So in some ways, the, the classic sort of analogy is the family. There's been lots of talk about family recently, coming from the Chinese, the CCP slash Chinese side, including Uyghurs who are members of the Communist Party and have official positions. You know, so recently somebody said, you know, a few days ago, somebody said, the Uyghur people are not members of the, uh, are, are members of the Chinese family. They are not descendants of the Turks, um, and they don't have anything to do with Turkish people. And then there's this sort of family, becoming family campaign where uh, Han officials go and spend time with Uyghur families in villages and other places and also cities. And they sort of both observe and normalize. So you're expected to take on particular behaviors. It goes right down to the behaviors of where you sleep, how you sleep. I mean of course, whether you pray or not is, is you know, you, you should not pray. Um, you should not pray before food, etc. You should not cleanse yourself in, uh, in any way before food. These sort of things are out of bounds. And then at the top of this family is a grandfather, Xi Jinping. So instead of being the Uyghur patriarchal structure, instead of having the the family of the Uyghurs and, and their socioeconomic organization, economic organization is also important, you have this CCP slash state push, like the CCP through the state organs, trying to incorporate Uyghurs into even more strongly imagined Han Chinese family. It's like a uh, not just a multi-ethnic family with different cultures and different practices, but one, a multi-ethnic family that actually has all the same practices. So it's about realigning those things.
1: You also mentioned that you have families of Uyghur and Muslim minorities and they'll have someone living with them to monitor how they sleep or like how they interact with their culture. So who is it that's coming into these homes?
0: They're usually government employees. So sometimes uh, well, most of them would be, would be officials of some kind, but I think it's not just officials. It's uh, anybody who's in a state work unit with some sort of position. So it's less likely that they will send people who are just ordinary workers, but they don't necessarily have to be leaders. They might be leaders of a very small unit. You know, very, yeah, the, the smallest cell within a state-owned work unit or a, a, a redistributive unit.
1: What kind of families are generally targeted with this kind of presence in their home? Are we talking about social elites? Are we talking about people who are heavily religious? Or are we talking about just a random selection of family homes? I'm not sure it's
0: random, but um, there's certainly a range. I think people who are very religious might already not be in their own homes.
1: And what's it like for people both inside the Xinjiang region and outside of China in terms of speaking about what's going on?
0: Well, people inside Xinjiang cannot really speak about what's going on. They are told, if they're Han people, uh, to not talk about national, pol- national stuff. It's, it's a, a four letter, four character um, uh, sort of saying basically don't talk about politics. And if you're Uyghur or other non-Han people, then you absolutely cannot. You would be classified as one of those people who are going straight to the re-education camp. So there's three types of people who go into those, uh, and they're classified in, in terms of extremity. One is religious people. They're the worst by, by the state's uh, view. And the second is people with connections to overseas and then the third one is just people who've done something wrong, like not learning Chinese, not, not putting your hand to your heart for the national anthem, um, or doing something, a uh, minor infraction of uh, not disloyalty, but failing to display loyalty. So failing to display loyalty is, is a, a reason for going to these camps. And if you're talking about you know, national politics in any sort of way, whether you're sending it overseas, this information in which case you could be accused and charged for disclosing state secrets. Or if you're um, critiquing it, then that's that's disloyalty. So people outside Xinjiang who have family inside Xinjiang, they also can't speak because it's one of the less covered aspects of this whole big story is that the police in, in Xinjiang, like local police, will have responsibility for people from their area. And so if you come from Aksu, for example, from the city, then the Aksu police station, if you're studying Uyghur, Uyghur studying overseas, they'll, they'll call you up and say, hello, what are you doing, where have you been, what's, uh, uh, what's your family members doing, how, many, how much contact? They'll ask you all these very intrusive questions. they ask you to send photographs of your identity documents, etc. Um, and if you don't comply, then your family members are in danger. Uh, for people who, are, who have no family connections with the region, then that's a choice that they make uh, to talk about it or not to talk about it.
1: And we've seen this sort of normalisation campaigning in different regions towards different ethnic and religious minorities, for instance, Tibet. So is this approach indicative of China's approach to other minorities? Uh,
0: No, not as such. I mean, Tibet, I think there is... Definite resonances with Tibet. Scholars of who who know much more about the Tibet than I do have have discussed it in terms of the extreme Marxism, extreme high high socialist, high communist sort of Marxism, and that sort of ideological refashioning. Um, and I would I have respect for that. The way it was articulated is pretty particularly good. Robbie Barnett sort of explained that. But then you've got the Southwest minorities, where there's many more. Uh, minorities, officially designated minorities in southwest China. More than half of them are all down there. And they are sort of incorporated already. You know, they're closer to Han people. Even though they have different cultures and they wear different clothes and everything, they're not as threatening, not seen as as threatening. So I don't think it's indicative of how the CCP has treated minorities. It's, it's indicative or similar to how the CCP has treated other groups it sees as threatening. So the classic one, I think, um, increasingly is Falun Gong. And what's happening in those camps, um, what we, the things that are dribbling out, the information that's dribbling out of things, you know, torture, injections and pills, we don't know what with, and people coming out dead, brain dead, unable to function. They don't know who they are, they don't know where they are. And that's what happens to Falun Gong adherents, um, that people just come back wrecked. They're just useless vegetables, sit at home and be a burden on their family. So at the very extreme end, that's what it's like.
1: What is it about Uyghur Muslim culture that the government finds so threatening that they've targeted them so severely?
0: What is it? Difference. There's an increasing intolerance of difference. And I think it, I think it is this alignment, this strong alignment to a different cultural hierarchy, a different cultural authority. The head of the Uyghur family was, was the head. And then they have above that is God. And now increasingly across China, people do not say, I believe the party, i.e., I believe what the party is saying. The The common word now is, I believe in the party. You know, in, in English, it's like, I, I, I believe that person. I trust that person. I trust that organization. But one the other one is, okay, they're raised to the status of a god. And that's what Xi Jinping and the Communist, um, the Communist Party under Xi Jinping is, is doing. threat like this, people who are elites in fact, saying, okay, we believe in the party. We believe in the party. So that's where Xi Jinping and sometimes Peng Diuan are up on the mantelpiece. The book is on the table.
1: And the Chinese government does try very hard to limit information about Xinjiang reaching the rest of the world. So what kind of strategies has it been using to make sure the information about what's going on doesn't get out to the rest of the world?
0: Social media and electronic communications is all monitored. Also, any any sort of telephone call, it's all monitored very closely. So anybody who's a a Uyghur or a minority will have on their smartphone, they have to have a a piece of software which basically spies on them. If you get a telephone call from outside, if you're a Uyghur grandmother living in a small village or on the outskirts of a town with a dodgy old 1980s telephone line, and you get a call that comes in from outside... They know that that's coming in from outside. They'll listen in, or at least they'll, um, they'll know it's coming in from outside. Minutes later, perhaps a couple of hours later, the police will be on the door saying, "Who who, who called? What did you speak about? Why did they call?" Etc. You might be your grandson who's studying in uh, somewhere benign, like I don't think anywhere overseas is benign actually. Um, in those in that mind, but uh, l- let's say uh, you know Italy or somewhere you know um, somewhere that's not Muslim. If it's coming from a Muslim country or a you. in fact, any contact with overseas people now is deemed to be a reason to go into these camps. Just that, just that contact.
1: So surveillance is quite a big part of how the Chinese government is managing the Muslims in Xinjiang.
0: Oh yeah, surveillance is very big. You know, the classic one that people always bring up is the, the surveillance cameras, the uh, proliferation of surveillance cameras. But I think that's Useful to the surveilling authorities more as a visible sign that you're being watched than as a way of watching. Surveillance cameras have not reduced crime. It's a statistic, worldwide statistic, they don't reduce crime. When the 2009 protests turned riots, we're on in, in Ulamuchi, uh in that evening of July 5th going into the morning of July 6th, was a, a brutal crackdown of brutal counter movement by the state, people's armed police and things and military to just kill all those people. When it was happening before the counter movement by the armed forces, there was members of the security forces watching through video cameras, controlling those video cameras and not doing anything about it. That could raise all sorts of conspiracy theories um, about what they were doing and what they were hoping to achieve by just letting these Uyghurs who were Venting.
1: What kind of conspiracy theories? Well, Just you one.
0: Could, you could say, well, why were they doing that? Why were they doing that? Were they were they letting uh, Were they sending a signal to everybody who's watching that these are actually animalistic people and really need to be controlled in the way that they're being controlled now? Perhaps. I mean, that's that's a conspiracy. I wouldn't be arguing that necessarily, but there's a lot of un, unanswered questions about that particular event that uh, we'll never know the answer to.
1: And what has the international response been like to China's actions in Xinjiang? Countries like Australia have very important economic ties and there is a balance to be struck between acting on claims of human rights violations and economic interest in China.
0: Well, I'd say uh, up until the more recent actions in the, from the Congress in, in the US, um, it's been not just muted but deafening silence exactly what to do about that. I have no particular answer, except that there should be condemnation from my view. I think that it needs to be raised and talked about. And ideally, best case scenario, a way needs to be brokered, perhaps not openly, ideally not openly, I don't think it will work openly. A way needs to be brokered for the Chinese to wind down, the CCP and the state to wind down what they're doing, wind back and try to bring back this it's going to take a long time. There's going to be a lot of resentment, a lot of broken people and resentful people. But the amount of resources they've got going into security and repression and destruction, if they put the same amount of resources into building, it's possible. Certainly, it's going to be better than what's happening now.
1: And it's been suggested that nations should follow their responses to, for example, the Tiananmen Square incident, where a lot of states did actually impose sanctions or respond with very strong statements. So, what's the difference now, given that China is in such a stronger position globally?
0: Well, I think people are just scared of China in many ways, scared of not having enough good relations with China so that they um, can continue to do business. And bilaterally, people dealing with China sorry, an individual state dealing with China is weak. Um, there needs to be a consensus across major actors, global actors, that this is not something that the international community, if that's not a uh, a devalued term now, um, the international community needs to stand up and say, look, this is, you've just gone too far, you're going too far, and we will impose sanctions or whatever you're going to impose. I mean, there needs to be a unified front, but that unified front doesn't need to be open. In my view, it might be best to let the Chinese government know that it's not acceptable, but not to do it in an open way necessarily. I mean, you you, you condemn openly, but then broker a deal more quietly, allowing people to choose face and back out slowly.
1: And if China maintains its current policies in Xinjiang, what do you think the future holds for the region?
0: It's just going to get worse and it's going to become empty. It's going to become socially and culturally empty. Uh, when, when I went to Xinjiang in 1995, the first time, and then I, when I lived there through 2001, two, and then 2007, ten, people in Xinjiang were happy. You know, generally, people in Xinjiang were happy. There was conflict, even after the riot, people were relatively happy in in the early years, I mean 2010, eleven, people were okay, moderately, especially before, um, and now people are feeling under siege. All people, not just uh, Muslims, although Muslims are in a far worse position. But the Han people are also feeling under siege. People waking up cold sweats at 4 a.m. in the morning. I can't, I can't imagine how much worse it must be for, for Islamic people. But if Han people are staying up writing political critiques um, and having to attend a number of hours, sometimes each day, of political study sessions and then waking up just stressed out too early in the morning, and having their passports under lock and key. So state state uh, employees will have their passports under lock and key. There's a list of 36 countries which are out of bounds for people living in, in Xinjiang who are Han people, um, including Russia and other places. Um, Malaysia, of course. You know, Islamic countries are totally out of bounds. So this is what's happening to the Han people. They're strung out. The Uyghur population is having their family structures and their whole culture destroyed. Um, it's just going to be life, like zombie life. Everybody's just going to have a zombie life there, and that's definitely not good for ongoing future of Xinjiang.
1: What's the relation like between Han and Uyghur people in Xinjiang?
0: Intense suspicion now, I would say. I haven't been back there for a while. But it seems to have been getting progressively worse, with ups and downs, of course. But progressively worse since 1949.
1: And do you think that even if somehow a peaceful resolution is reached that Uyghur people will ever be able to trust or have faith in the Chinese government or even other minority groups in China, how are they going to build up trust in their government?
0: Oh, I don't think that anybody in China really trusts the government. The you know the government flip flops on policies. Things change all the time. The recent birth control or family planning policy is an example of that. People are up in arms about how suddenly it went from one child in 2015 to, went to two children. Now it's sort of looking like three children, and they're saying, you know, "Please have more children." You know, so nobody trusts the government in that respect. Same with the environmental policies, etc. You know, so tolerate the government, tolerate living under the. Uh,
1: how will they learn to tolerate the government? <laughs>
0: Um, Well, for Islamic people, I think they just have to, the, the government would have to wind back what it's doing there and make concerted effort to say, okay, this is what we consider within the bounds and this is what we consider outside of the bounds. And they'd have to make much more genuine and softer and conciliatory efforts to integrate the different, like so the Han and the weaker population to put it bluntly, at the most basic level, allow Han people and Uyghur people to operate together. And that means a certain amount of acceptance of difference on the part of the Chinese party slash state.
1: Thank you so much for coming in today. Unfortunately, that is all that we have time for today, but it's been great having you on the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: I think that you brought a bit of a human element to this, and I really appreciate the fact that you can speak to the relations and the people who are actually in the region. Uh, Don't forget that if you have any comments or feedback, we would love to hear from you. Policy Forum is on Twitter. We're Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. We have our usual podcast on Friday, Policy Forum Pod, and I'll be back next week with another episode of The Brief. Thank you for listening.